0: able to write for money just felt so broad and impossible to me at the beginning especially when you like start your your college life with somebody saying like you'll never make money doing the thing you wanted to do when you were a little kid
1: you're listening to creatives making money the podcast for creatives who are on a mission to do the work they feel most called to do and make some money while they do it This is a show for the makers, the dreamers, the doers, the creators, the artists, the crazy ones, and the ones who are determined to consciously build the life and career of their dreams. Here, we don't just believe in getting your dream job. We believe in creating it. So what does creative success even look like? How do we live a fully expressed, abundant AF life? That's precisely what we're here to find out. My mission with Creatives Making Money is to conduct 100 interviews with successful creatives and those who love and support them about money, career, and the process of making and doing what they most love, including all of the ups, downs, and in-betweens. I'm your host, Jamie Jensen, writer, storyteller, filmmaker, serial entrepreneur, and shameless creator. No matter where you are in your creative and financial journey, I'm here to help you create like you mean it. Hello, and welcome to the Creatives Making Money podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Jensen, and I'm so excited to have Hillary Weiss here with me today. Um, I love Hillary for like a bajillion reasons. Uh, one of the biggest reasons I love her is because she's hilarious. Um, <laughs> She's hilarious. We always have such a good time um, when we're together. So not to set the bar really high for this interview, but I – expect that you'll laugh at least a few times. Um, So Hillary is the chief copywriter, ghostwriter, and brand voice coach over at HillaryWise.com and she has helped hundreds of brands find their voice and get seen and heard with content that truly speaks their language and fits their phenomenal work. So she works with people one-on-one. She helps. She does speaking engagements. She also has an amazing copywriting course called The Word Shop. So she is the creator of The Word Shops. She's a fantastic writer um, and And I'm just so excited to have her here with me today. Yay!
0: I'm so (laughs) excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. I'm so pumped. You don't even know. I've been counting down the days to this interview.
1: Oh, you're so funny.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I thought so bad. That that wasn't even a joke. We haven't even started on the jokes yet. But no, I I love everything that you do. And I'm so excited for this podcast. I think it's so important. And um, yeah, I just, let's riff. Let's do this.
1: Let's do this. So before we dig in deep, deep, I want to just give everyone an idea of like what, like literally your story, you know what I mean? Like, okay, great. They know, they know all of these things that you've achieved, but, um, but you started somewhere where before you were a professional copywriter and a course creator and like all of those things, um, you know, basically I'm asking for the story of how did you become, you know, a professional creative
0: Absolutely, my origin story, no problem. Um, yeah, I, let's do that. <laughs> hell yeah. Uh, once upon a time, when I was but a wee baby uh, in actually university, I got my start in business quite early. I started my business at 22, but there was a little bit of lead up to that. So uh, I'll actually begin way at the beginning, where when I was uh, but a wee baby writer, an extra wee baby writer, um, I have been writing since I could hold a pen, and I really, really wanted to be a journalist growing up. Like I did the nerd camp thing. I did uh, internships, I was features editor of my school paper. I really wanted to write. So I did an internship at my local paper my senior year of high school. I know, we're going way back here. Uh, My senior year of high school and my boss pulled me into his office one day, taking me away from the work I was doing at the paper, which was like intern work, you know writing obituaries and birth announcements, but it was still the coolest thing ever because my words were in print. Um,
1: (laughs) So I would love to see some of the obituaries you've written in in your previous life. Is that dark? It's dark. No, I don't even
0: know how to find them at this stage. But yeah, I was just like editing what people sent in and stuff. But I just remember like I would like tear open the obituary section when it came out because I was just so excited to see my own words in print. Um, It's the little things in this life and this career path of ours.
1: A hundred. So he pulled you into his office. Sorry. I I had to, I had to highlight that detail.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's how I got my start at obituaries. We begin at the bottom and we work our way up. I, so he pulled me into his office and he was like, okay, so what do you want to major in, in university next year? And I was like, I want to be a journalist. I want to write and change the world. And, And this was 2007. So he sat me down and he said something to the effect of, Journalism is dying, print journalism and newspapers. So I don't suggest that you major in journalism. Uh, Public relations is where all the money is and you'll still get to write and you get to make lots of money marketing. My wife is in marketing and she makes bank and the traditional papers are dying, but you can always write, you can always contribute and always have a voice, but definitely go where the money is. So Being the uh, 18-year-old that I was, I could have said no, but I actually listened. So I ended up majoring in public relations in college. And uh, it was really unfortunate because I did a bunch of internships and I did it in a bunch of different industries. I worked in fashion. I worked with Patty, the scuba company. I worked in nonprofits. I did a little bit of this, a little bit of that, trying to find something that I liked in that sphere, and it just wasn't clicking. It really wasn't clicking. So I was towards the end of my senior year of college, and I was uh, interning at my university's media relations office, and a friend sends me a link to a website, and it turns out to be the website of Alexandra Franzen, who is a really, really wonderful copywriter and was like the OG superstar copywriter in the industry, and she said, there was one line in the email that said, you could totally do this. And I clicked to her website. I didn't even know what copywriting was, but I was blown away. I devoured everything. Uh, every single thing I could see, I could read of hers. I was talking to her on Twitter. She was still on social media. I read every blog post and like for four months, I was just following everything she did because this this was writing involved, but there was she was clearly making money. There was a marketing piece of it. So my PR background was relevant. I was blown away. And she's fabulously creative and so unique. And it was awesome to see somebody really bring so much vibe and just color to the table, because I don't know if you, anyone's familiar with the PR world listening to this, but if you've ever tried to write a press release and had to send it for proofing to the head of a PR company, they literally have to take every single descriptive piece of language, every adjective out of the release. So it was very much about, at the time, about shrinking my style when all I wanted to do was just be crazy, disco, technicolor, rainbow, everything. So... I ended up reaching, working up the courage to reach out to her on Twitter, and I believe I asked her verbatim, do you need a minion to do your bidding? And (laughs) the answer was, yes, unfortunately. I ended up doing transcription services for her strategy sessions, which is really kind of how I learned the ropes. And I'm sure it wasn't very intentional to teach me the ropes of the industry by listening in on her work, but it really did the job because... For every, I don't know if you've ever done transcript work, but it is soul-sucking, just because for every hour of audio, there's two hours of transcription. So I started doing that, but it forced me to really absorb what I was hearing, and I heard her strategy sessions, then I heard the editing sessions. There was These were about four to six-hour sessions in total, and so I was able to see the work live shortly thereafter, so it really taught me kind of what goes into the world of copy. Uh, at the time, I was still working at a PR firm. I had graduated and was working for free for three months, and then for the princely sum of $8 an hour. And I decided that I <laughs> the really, really sum to go. Yeah, oh my God. It's like, I'm so glad I went to a four-year university to, uh, you know, make eight bucks an hour. But... I ended up losing that job as you might expect because I just wasn't that enthused, but I was still doing transcriptions for Alex and I was so curious about that world. She gave me the greatest gift, which ended up being my first client. So I started working with her for free for six months and around the time I lost my job, I was skilled enough that I was able to take on some paying clients, paying for very little money, mind you. And I started really getting my feet wet in the world of copywriting. I started picking up referrals and I partnered with a graphic designer at the time and we created a brand called Young Blood Sorcery. God rest in peace that name. It was an amazing name for two 22 year olds running a business and everything kind of picked up from there. So I started writing, I got my start in the B-School universe which is life coaches and creatives and everyone who's sort of been through the B-School program, which was a really wonderful place. It still is for creative professionals to get their names passed around, but particularly then because it was so small and vocal. And through that, I was able to build up a kind of a referrals list. So I was working project to project. And then I started working intensive style with clients over one, three, and five days for a couple of years, one client at a time, which got a bunch of people in the door. And then I finally switched to my my retainer model and my course, and yeah, just putting one foot in front of the other, and I have the business you see today.
1: Mm-hmm. Was there a moment in through any of that? Like, I have a hundred questions for you now, oh, <laughs> but is there a moment in any of that where you like felt like, Oh my god, I, I have my own business, I'm a professional copywriter, like, this is now who I am, and like, it's part of my identity, it's it's like what I'm doing, it's legit, I'm a grown up. Do you know what I mean? Like, was there a moment? where it felt like it just really felt real for you. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. It was about four years in, you know, imposter, so it takes about four years to work through and graduate out of your imposter syndrome. Um, But I, yeah, gosh, let me think. I would say I first started taking things seriously, probably it, it was after my first year because in that first year of business, you're so desperate and you're taking anything you can get and you're letting people be rude to you and you have no boundaries. But my MO was that I, I'm not the best copywriter yet. I am not the smartest strategist or any of those things. But I made a pact with myself in that first year to work harder than anybody. I was like, if I have any advantage, it is my work ethic. And I will outwork any of my competitors to get where I want to be. So with that, sort of, I have had to backtrack that work ethic and workaholism in recent years. But in that first year, it was very much just get the projects, get the experience in. And then finally, by the end of year one, I was comfortable calling myself a copywriter because I felt like such a junior and such a beginner for that whole first year that when people asked me what I did, I told them I was a freelance writer and didn't go into any more detail. But after I passed that year mark, I, I felt like I had earned the confidence to talk about that. It's and so then funny because
1: if you four, asked... Me- and then in year
0: four, I had like an actual more, more solid business, but go on. If you asked you. I
1: was just going to say it's so funny because if you asked me, like, what you're like, you were saying that your distinguishing thing, you're like, I might not be the best or the this or the that, but I'm willing to work harder <laughs> than anything else. And I just find that so funny because to me, that's not remotely like your special sauce or what makes you you or what makes you <laughs> appealing. Like, yeah. it's not like even a little bit that. So that I find that, interesting. I just find that interesting.
0: Well, but please. Please that continue. was a starting point, you know, I think, yeah, I was, it was a starting point because I, I am so, I've got that, that Protestant work ethic drilled into me where like you don't take anything you haven't earned. So there's a bunch, I think any, every creative has a series of tiers or, or checkpoints or KPIs, the saying goes, that they want to reach before they can call themselves certain things or do certain things. And some people stack way too many of those ahead of themselves so they never get started or never have the confidence. But for me, that like being able to outwork anyone for the first year was just the engine that kept me going because it kept me realistic because I didn't want to oversell myself. I was shy about charging more. I was struggling to believe that I could do this. And a year in, I was like, okay, I've got it. And nowadays, I am really vocal about that part of the journey. And I think I have three really key values for my brand, which is radical honesty and transparency, positivity and encouragement. And also this like humor, because it really is this crazy journey of entrepreneurship, especially as a creative. You have to take so many knocks, but you have, and you have to pass so many milestones, and it's just this grand adventure. Because I know, I remember being so envious of you the first time I met you, because I think you were in like year one or two or something. And we were having, gosh, we were having like cocktails in the East Village, and that, that punch place, do you remember?
1: Yeah, it was that, it's like the Cuban place. I can't remember. Yeah right now. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. And you were just
0: like, yeah, so I'm in like year two and I've already got a bunch of junior writers and I kind of run an agency now and this, this and that. And I just remember being, oh my God, (laughs) I do not have the courage to do any of this. This girl is so cool. I hope she likes me. So it was just very, um, I think everyone kind of approaches this differently, but I was also so young that like work ethic was my, my, my reason to sort of overcome Mm -hmm. this fear that I was too young that I didn't belong So just starting with the work ethic worked and now there's a lot more to it than that, fortunately.
1: Mm -hmm. I love that you, well, the Protestant work ethic thing is something I definitely want to touch (laughs) on, but (laughs) I think a lot of of people can like resonate with that and can identify with that and like, no, no, like our our kind of feel that too. Um, just to backtrack for a second, you said KPIs. So I just want to define that for anyone who, listening who d- isn't <laughs> as deep into the space of entrepreneurship as we are, that like a KPI is a key performance indicator. So it would be some kind of external metric or way of measuring like how you're doing in, in any specific area, right? So um, I'm curious if you had like specific benchmarks or like goals or things that you were like, aiming for that for you were how you were assessing how you were doing
0: absolutely and it was so actually confusing because i did some stuff kind of backwards so in my first year alex Branson was working with some heavyweights in the industry and so in that first year i'm like a 22 year old sitting in her like sweaty miami apartment and like her underpants just on a half broken laptop just trying to make things work and i got sent like a really really big client within like the first three to six months that I was in business and doing this and I totally screwed it up. So after that, you know, you think that it's those big clients that are the KPIs and the performance indicators and that that's the big milestone. But in reality, for me, it just became those points that I felt like I had mastered something. Like when did I feel like I had mastered or could do a sales page in my sleep? How about an about page? Like when was there a point where I realized that I could do a website in three days or less? And that was a huge part of my intenses because it taught me how to do things really fast and really well because it was only working with one person at a time. And it really forced me to kind of put the pedal to the metal with my deliverables. But I think a big one for me was was the shift in my business to figure out what kind of business I want to run. Cause when you're starting out, you're just very hand to mouth and you're reacting and you're just making sure you can pay the bills and keep the lights on. And for me that was started with hourly work and then it moved into project work. And then when I made the switch to my intensives, I think that was a big moment for me because it felt like I was actually running a business that I could create packages with intention and have people coming to me and have a clear beginning, middle and end to the work. Cause I think also, when you're starting out you don't really have like an onboarding process or an offboarding and your systems are all kind of fuckacked. so that's the first moment where i felt like okay i have a real business and then gradually realizing that intensive style had me working six to seven days a week it was one thing but i when i moved into retainer the retainer style in i think like 2016 i worked mostly with clients via retainer that was another big moment because that you get to the point in business where you think especially with money where first, you just want to survive. Second, you realize that you can make a little bit more than you were making and you can work with clients in the way that you want. And then you get to that stage where you kind of look back and say, okay, this style of working isn't really good for me. I'm super stressed out all the time and working constantly. What can I create with intention that feels sustainable? And that that was definitely, I think, the crowning moment for me feeling like a, quote, real business owner was getting to that stage where I said, okay. This is how I want to work because this is what feels good for me. And this is what's going to make the most sense and make me the most money. So that was definitely a huge turning point and what I would consider my biggest KPI to date, aside from putting out my course.
1: Awesome. I'm curious to know, like, just because you knew you wanted to to write always, you know, how close yeah. you how close your like working life and relationship with work and career you know, now feels like, you know, your dream version, you know, how close do you think you are to like, this was the dream. And like, this is what I'm doing.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I think it was just the, the idea of being able to write for money just felt so broad and impossible to me at the beginning, especially when you like start your, your college life with somebody saying like, you'll never make money doing the thing you wanted to do when you were a little kid. But I think, now, I'm, I'm getting closer and closer to my dream business, but I think what we need to realize as creative professionals as well is that our needs are constantly changing. What we consider sustainable is constantly changing, and so I'm always trying to kind of shape my business to that <laughs> despite myself sometimes because when I, I tend to work a little too hard and learn to walk that back. So what's been big for me this year because last year when I released my course It was just like this wildly huge project, and I had like ten creatives designing the thing, and I ran like two betas, and I did this whole launch for it, and then I was totally flattened. I ended up sleepwalking for the first time in my life, and all of that. So towards the end of last year, I. Yes. Yes. I mean, I Uh remember that you were
1: burnt out. I remember that you wrote this long post about being like you went to an event to speak, and it was like coming home from that event that you were like, "I'm a pancake," (laughs) like I can't. Yeah. (laughs)
0: I'm laughing about this now because it's funny, but I had this total meltdown on this like tiny airline in between Phoenix and St. Paul before I caught my connection to JFK. And I just remember getting on the flight and sitting down and like opening my laptop to get some stuff done. And all of a sudden, just like tears pouring down my face and I'm like crying. And this woman next to me just looks at me, kind of looking at me, giving me the side eye, seeing me crying. And she's like, Are are you okay? I'm like, yes, I I don't really know what's wrong right now, but I'm doing okay. She's like, is it work? Are you okay? I was like, no, work is great. I'm making so much money, but I just don't know what's wrong. So I had to to very much get over that. Um, But I burnt out. How
1: how did you get over that?
0: Well, let me tell you. Uh, First of all, I ended up uh, really taking a step back from taking on additional clients for a while. I, and I really prioritized health because when you're getting started, especially when you're younger, you it's, it's like people are like, yeah, you need to maintain your health as an entrepreneur. You can't burn out. And burnout is kind of, before it happens to you, it's kind of this like mystical thing. It's what people, what happens to people who are not you. It is what happens to people who aren't as strong as you or don't work hard as hard as you until it happens. And you realize oh man, this is very real. So for me, it really came down to prioritizing my health. So I started working with actually a wellness coach and a personal trainer, which has been totally transformative for me. And I thought that we were working together and that I would just get like a bunch of exercises and some meal plans. And then I'd lose 30 pounds and feel great and move on with my life. But that was actually not the case. Thank goodness. We spent the whole (laughs) month Un- unpacking laughing, my relationship. I'm laughing
1: because I feel like that's an expectation that we can all relate to. And it's funny. So, so you spent, Absolutely. I'm not trying to cut you off. I just want to, well, under- nice. I want to underline these lessons because there's so much awesome stuff you're sharing. Um, and it's just so true. Yeah. It's so much truth. Thank you for being a truth teller. So, so you didn't just take on a meal plan and get some exercises and lose 30 pounds and move on. Something else happened. <laughs>
0: Well, I've tried to do that for years and years because I am like my relationship to fitness is just super weird. I'll, I'll touch on this real quick before I move on. We're basically like I have so many 30, 60 and 90 day fitness programs on my laptop, it would make you laugh. Like and meal plans that you like download from the internet from that girl with a great ass on Instagram. And just think that's going to solve your problem. But I had never like followed through on any of them all the way. Like I get a 90 day program and make it five weeks and fall right off the wagon, gain back the weight that I lost because like work would happen and stuff and then get and wait for three more months until I gained all the weight back and kicked my own ass to get back in the gym again. Um, But I wanted to break that cycle because I think, again, entrepreneurship is this really this battleground of personal development in so many ways, because you're really forced to look at your patterns. You're forced to look at your boundaries you're forced to look at the way you relate to other people and connect with other people. And that can be very confronting and it's really easy to push it all down. But when I started working with Elaine, my coach, she really sat me down and was like, let's talk about your relationship to stress. Let's talk about your relationship to achievement. And my my brain was like, uh, are you sure you want to go into this right now? Because stress and I are like peanut butter and jelly. Art, achievement and I are like peanut butter and jelly. And it's, so interesting because we, what we discovered as we were sort of working, try, digging down to the bottom of it, because it really is all connected, right? I'm sure you've experienced this in your own life. Like once you get serious about personal work or our wellness, you realize how closely it's tied into everything that you do in your business. And I think that was a big thing for me. So we started, she, she asked me how is it serving you when you do a 30 60 90 day program and get really upset and, and disappointed in yourself and then take three months off and whoop your ass to get back to the gym again she's like, how is it serving you And there was this long silence where I just stared at her confused and I said it's, it's not and she explained I have a theory that the only this is the, the way it's serving you is because that Moment that like anger at yourself that feeling like you're not good enough is what's driving you back into the gym That's where you're getting your motivation from Mm -hmm. and I realized that so much of that was happening in my business where so much of what I was doing and kind of Creating in terms of going the extra mile for clients and working so late and doing double time and all of this stuff was because I Felt that if I didn't I had no value that if I wasn't working as hard as I possibly could I was lazy like that was my, that was my KPI. Like if I wasn't super stressed, was I even working? That was just a huge, and that was a huge realization moment for me and definitely something that I've, I've walked back in my business. And it's a choice I have to make every day because it's a natural state for me to be working so hard and feeling stressed out and be comfortable in that zone because it feels familiar and it feels like I'm productive. But there's a whole world out there. And one of my my other coach, Erica, pointed out, she was like, stress and pain and complaining does not equal money. Nope. And I was like, oh, are you sure? (laughs) Uh, uh, Really? Oh, okay. And that's why I joke about the Protestant work ethic. That's uh, that's a saying I stole from um, a colleague of mine. But she, Sarah von Bargen, who's another fabulous former copywriter. But yeah, it's. I think we get into that zone that we have to work so hard for every penny that we earn, or else we're just takers. Something we have to undo. So anyway, that's the story of how I started recovering from burnout. (laughs) Thank you for listening to that diatribe.
1: Well, it's. I mean, I I love that story because I think that it again, it's like it's so relatable. And to be honest with you, the "how is it serving you?" question is one of my favorite questions to ask like whether you're asking it of yourself or you're positioning it like to others in your life because I also believe that we don't do things that don't serve us. So if we're choosing something, we're choosing it because it's doing something for us or there's like a reason we're addicted to it that yeah. we need to dig into and like figure out even if it's on a subconscious level. It's like, okay, but why? <laughs> yeah. But like why are you doing that? Because you don't it's a choice and like you certainly could choose to do things differently right
0: yeah absolutely but i think there's no and there's so few examples i think in our culture especially in like western culture of people who have sustainable businesses and who have good work ethics but aren't in the office from 6 a.m to 10 p.m every day that mm-hmm. is sort of the the culture and the vision of success that we tend to worship like i think even that was like one of some i had a friend who was Uh, who's no longer a friend who was supporting Donald Trump in the last election and was like, yeah, but he's such a hard worker. He gets up at 4 a.m. every day and just like works around the clock. And I was just like, that is a, is that really a selling point of a person that you want running the country? Like somebody who is so depleted all the time, you know, somebody who only gets four hours of sleep. Like, is that really what we want? It was just, it's such an interesting, it's such an interesting point because again, you don't hear stories of like, this entrepreneur built a sustainable business and still is able to spend time with their family and like fuel themselves properly and all that. We're obsessed with the story of like, this person is successful because they worked nonstop. They worked their fingers to the bone. And so that, and only for that reason that they deserve what they have. Why do you think that is? Because America is a warlike country. (laughs) No, it's, well, it really, it, it, to a point, that is true. And I, uh, this is something that I've talked about with my coach. And it's this, um, you know, we uh, the baby boomer generation, I'm a millennial personally, and the people who raised the baby uh, the millennials were the baby boomers, whose parents were the greatest generation, which had back-to-back wars and the Depression and all this stuff that we know. So that, I, I believe, to a point, led to this culture of competition of wanting to outstrip the person next to you, of the fact that like, if things are not unpleasant, then you're not earning what you have. I think it was just the nature of the generation that came before the people who raised us, that that was passed on. Is that too, is that too philosophical? Sorry. No, I
1: love it. No, I love it. I just, it's funny cause my mind is like, oh, that's so interesting. Cause I'm thinking about human nature. And like, um, you know, that I think There are still these like it's it's the same way that fear served us a specific way at a different in a different time when like we were cavemen, you know, and absolutely yeah, you know, we we did actually have to like run for our lives and needed adrenaline on like a regular basis to like not get by a wild boar or whatever. So (laughs) (laughs) that was not the that was not the best articulated way of saying that, but it's just interesting because I think about like you know. Where does our addiction to stress come from? Um, like there, is, there are these natural survival instincts that are very primal. You know, like protecting your own is a very primal. It's like a primal natural thing to feel. And, and you know, why we have fight or flight is like, again, it's, it's a survival thing. So it's just interesting. Um, it's interesting because I do think that the environments that we're raised in and societally and personally – um, you know, obviously, make a huge impact on what we believe about what we're worth and how we justify that worth, how we justify you know what we charge as as service providers, you know what I mean so that's it's interesting and and the other thing that I wanted to dig into on this too is that I think that there's something about the nature of creative work that is like it can be loose in like scope and time and boundaries because it it expands and contracts in a way that like other types of work doesn't. Do you know what I mean? Where you're like, I still have projects where I'm like, I'm not sure how long it's going to take me to write this because it could take me 10 hours or it could take me an hour. And until I feel done with it or it feels complete to me, you know, it's almost hard to, to, to figure out like how to fit that into a day or into a package or into like, you know, a working relationship with with a client who wants support with something. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and I know that there are there are people in creative professions who are working for companies who wouldn't necessarily consider themselves entrepreneurs or that say that they have their own business, even if they're working freelance, where because it's a project based thing. There just are like, well, it just needs to get done by this time. So you're working late. Or like I have friends who are TV writers who are like, well, I'm working on an outline. So I'm going to be here on Sunday and I'm going to be here late tonight because it just needs to get done. And like, this is the time we have to do it. You know, so it's just, mm-hmm. I, I just personally find that fascinating where there's this like rule where when there's a deadline, it somehow magically happens in time, but, but it sometimes also happens in time at the expense of our health and well-being.
0: I totally agree. And I think the creative's relationship to time is such an interesting thing because I see people run into this issue in a, in a different form around pricing uh, things high that they can do quickly. You know what I mean? So for example, there was this great, I think Paul Jarvis posted it, or there was an XKCD comic about this where a client just charged, say, $1,000 for a logo. And the client's like, how long is it going to take you to design this? And the designer says, about an hour. So the client says, why am I paying $1,000 for you to do an hour of work? And the designer replies, because you are paying for my years of education and experience, for my portfolio, and for my expertise. And I think so many many creatives are so anxious about pricing anything but hourly because it doesn't feel, quote, right if they can do something easily and quickly or if it comes naturally to them. And that's definitely a hurdle when it comes to pricing that I think a lot of people should do work on getting over because you need to be pricing by value, not necessarily by hour, or else you're going to lose out massively if you have this incredible skill set that you've worked hard to build.
1: Do you feel like that's something that you struggled with in the beginning too?
0: Oh, hell yeah. Are you kidding? Absolutely. (laughs) I was like shocked anyone was paying me anything. I I started out like $25 an hour, and I was like so afraid to charge people. I did my first service free, and then it really, really took a lot of work just to tell people, now you have to pay me, I'm so sorry. Um, this is, I think, the first time I heard about people charging by value, it sounded so arrogant to me. It sounded like it was a way to just charge whatever the hell you want. But now that I'm seven years into my business, it's such, a, it's such an important thing to understand because owning your, your worth and your value, which sounds like such trite life-coachy terms, but it's so true being able to understand and comprehend your own value as a creative is essential in not just your pricing model, but in the work that you do and the clients that you choose to attract and the way you show up in the world.
1: Yeah. It's funny. It's, it's so true. and know it's funny because I have like a very, I personally have a very interesting relationship with the like idea of like charging what you're worth, because I think that like your worth isn't really measurable. <laughs> like You can't, like you're, you know, like you're not yeah. worth more because you're charging more or because you make more. Like it's, it's like your value as a human being is so different than like your value as a service provider, or as an entrepreneur. Or absolutely. As a, you know what I mean? It's like, those are two totally different absolutely. things. And like, I almost think that when we get them too mixed up and intertwined, like that's, that's almost where some of our, like more of the bullshit comes up,
0: you know? Um, yeah, absolutely.
1: So like absolutely. what I, I want to clarify. Yeah. Go ahead.
0: That- what, what do you want to know? What, what do you want to know before I clarify? Well, I was going to
1: ask, like, what advice you would give to someone who, like, is, like, oh, I'm charging hourly, but I, like, it would feel so much better to charge my project or charge, charge yeah. for, like, a package that's, like, the value I'm delivering instead of just, like, the time I'm spending. Like, I was going to yeah. ask what your advice would be.
0: Well, I'm so glad because that was actually what I was about to clarify. Psychic, you- Um, I personally believe that the way to approach it is when you are pricing a project, when you are like about to write an email sequence, think about it in terms of the revenue and value it's going to generate for the client. And when I say price by value, I don't mean price by personal value. I mean, price by the value of what you know you can create. So for example, let's say you're charging $2,000 for a sales page. $2,000 $2,000 for a sales page sounds like a lot because it's, especially when you're just starting out, because it's a page on the internet. It's not even a full website, even though it's just as much work. But how you price by value for that is that the client is paying you 2000 so they can make $100,000. You know, a client is paying you $10,000 for an email funnel so they can make a quarter million. That is what I mean by value, by understanding what the work you do means for your client in the long run. And this can be a little more subjective when you're say, like helping a client develop brand identity or uh, write a blog series or something like that. And yet it is still it is still uh, quantifiable by their expanded reach, by how many new eyeballs and leads they're going to get in, by how their business can grow with professional support behind them because they look polished. If you work with the right person, they really help you show up as the best version of yourself and the clearest version of yourself to your target market. So it's massively valuable, whether you're writing or designing or coding or whatever it may be, or strategizing for a $10,000 product, or whether you're uh, doing all that for a lead magnet, the value is still there and you have to be able to sort of figure out what that means for your client before you price. That's sort of the way I see it. Think about what the result will be when you create your pricing model.
1: Mm, such good advice. Um, so I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, hello. <laughs> you
0: kind of know what you're talking about. Ah, <laughs> uh, jeez. Uh, you know, it's a crazy life. Go on.
1: <laughs> um, what I was gonna ask was, sorry, that got garbled. What I was gonna ask was <laughs> fine. Um, I have a couple more questions for you. One is like if you looked back if you could look back in time to like your own life and like being a kid growing up and, and, you know, being in the environment you grew up in and all of that stuff and feel free to share as much or as little details you want to. Um, what do you think, what do you think really mostly motivated your, I have to be the hardest working person and like earn, earn every cent, you know, um, like really earn it. Like, Okay.
0: Well, hit, hit, tell
1: us, tell us.
0: All right, all right. I'm uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Gosh, I'm just so excited to answer these questions because they're so fabulous. Forgive me for jumping in. Uh, I, My work ethic comes from my dad, which I think probably is an origin for parents or probably an origin of work ethic for a lot of people. Uh, my dad is a physician or was, he's retired now, but he worked every day from six thirty, six o'clock in the morning or 6.30 in the morning, he was out of the house and he would be back at eight. And he ran a practice and he worked... Uh, seven days a week, basically, because he would work during the week, he would go in until noon on Saturdays, and then he would be on call on Sundays because he ran a private practice. And when I was a kid, it was always so impressed on me that I did not have anything. I was not You know, I I, was daughter of a physician. I was fortunate enough to have quite a privileged upbringing. We traveled a lot, but my parents always impressed on me that I did not have money. All of their money was theirs and I deserved nothing. And it was also impressed on me as a child because I had a job from 14 years old on because my parents didn't want to give me or didn't give me an allowance. Or if my friends were going to the movies, they were like, do you have money to go to the movies? I was like, no, I, I don't well, we're not giving you any, you stay home. So it was always impressed upon me that if I wanted something, I needed to work, I needed to work, work and work for it because no one's gonna hand you anything in this life and nobody cares about you in this life. You have to care about yourself and make yourself valuable for other people and all of that. So that was definitely impressed on me as a kid. And I was also very uh i don't know if you can tell this about me but i was bombastic from a young age and it was (laughs) i think my folks were also a little afraid that if they gave me too many resources that i would just be all over the town wreaking all kinds of havoc and to be fair they were correct but i was fortunate (laughs) enough to have a job from a young age and really be able to connect with that reality that if i wanted to continue the life that i had had growing up if i wanted to provide for my future children that i would have to Uh, just work my butt off in order to be worthy of the dreams that I had. And I appreciate that. I really do. But I think it definitely gets so ingrained into your cells when that kind of stuff starts from such an early age that you realize there's a point where you are working too hard, that you are pushing yourself too much and too often, and you have to figure out where the line is.
1: I have so many feelings about the story you just told. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. Well, well, the, well. when you say that you were like a certain way from a young age and that they were worried if they gave you too many resources, you'd kind of run around wreaking havoc, like I can't help but hear – well, I can't help but hear like that the, that's like a – there's like a trust foundation, you know what I mean? Like trusting you and like what are you going to do if you have money and like can you have – you know, yeah. like what unlimited money, like can you trust your – can you be trusted with money? 'Cause like the message of that is like that you can't be, you know, which I imagine. Yeah, it's w- it's a lot. What do
0: you imagine? What do you imagine?
1: Well, I just imagine that like that's also it's just another message that you received. You know what I mean? That maybe is lodged somewhere. <laughs> and like yeah, I'm not exactly. because it's funny. Like I it's actually like I i'm really it made me sad to hear um i mean and look we all have we all have this stuff it's not like just you um everyone has a story like this and i think our parents mean well and they like mean to teach us all of the best of the things and i think uh you know it's one of those things where i feel like like some lessons like land and don't do any damage and some (laughs) land do lots of damage and like Oh, and when we're parents, we're just going to be doing the same thing in the best way we can.
0: Absolutely. I, I love my parents. I have a wonderful relationship with both my folks. So I def- definitely don't, you know, blame them in any way. And I'm super grateful that I was taught the value of money from a young age because I also grew up in like a really a fairly affluent environment. You know, I went to private school and there were some kids in my grade whose parents just or just gave them whatever they wanted, you know, driving BMWs and Hummers. This was back in the early 2000s and all all of this stuff that they had and, And they just got into so much trouble later in life and ended up really like stagnant. So I think, of course, some of them did very well and had beautiful, wonderful, amazing lives and are very successful. But I think they were just like afraid that being in that environment would nurture uh, an inability to like value money or hard work and and expecting things to be handed to me like with that millennial sense of entitlement with our avocado toast and whatnot. But I think um, I, I value it, but again, we, there are, As you say, there are lessons that we learn that, that are rooted in us that have value, but also there are elements of it that are incorrect and that we need to figure out how to walk back. And I think that's, that's part of growing up. And that's, again, another reason why entrepreneurship is the ultimate personal development, like gladiator coliseum, because it really forces you to
1: take stock of that. It's funny. I'm curious. The I'm just curious because you brought this up and it's, it's I'm curious. The whole idea of like millennials are entitled assholes thing, right? Like <laughs> Yeah. Do you know anyone like that? Like personally?
0: <laughs> no, I don't. Do you?
1: No. And this is like a thing that I struggle with because I'm like, well, we're millennials, but like also we work our asses off. You know, it's not it's like different type of work, right? Than like like I'm not going yeah. to a mill or a factory or you know i'm not a mechanic i'm not a plumber like there's right i think
0: you would make such a great mechanic though i I would be here for the universe where you are some amazing trash talking badass lady mechanic out there thank you
1: i'm there there
0: for that timeline anyway
1: go on only if i was like in a transformers movie would i ever
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes that's a good point
1: um yeah, it's like that, I don't know, it's just that comes up a lot. And I think that, that, that I almost feel like that myth or it's a myth to me because I don't personally know anyone that I consider to be that, um, unless we, I'm, we're just so blind to who we actually are, which is, who knows? Um,
0: <laughs> but like, I sometimes
1: wonder, time. I sometimes wonder if that myth of like being an entitled D-bag or even, you know, being someone who grew up in an affluent environment you know, if if we're like working harder to try to prove that we're not that. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think burnout is a huge problem among millennials. And I think this is going to come out later because every single millennial uh, professional that I know, like 90% of my writer friends, particularly women, have worked themselves into the emergency room more mm-hmm. than once. And I'm sure you have friends with the story story. Too. I don't know if you share that story, but I mean, I am the, my, the, how my health was impacted by my launch. And I think there is this, every single generation mocks the generation that comes after it, right, as lazy and entitled. It's sort of just how our culture works. But I think also the generation, there was so much change between us and our, our parents' generation that they're looking at it through the wrong lens. So they're like, why aren't millennials buying houses? It's all the avocado toast. And we're like, no, no, you guys fucked up the economy. Sorry, I swore. Uh, but you guys screwed up the economy So and the housing market, so it's extremely difficult for us to purchase houses. Like, millennials job hop, and they can never stay at the same place. And it's like, I'm sorry, Barbara, I have to break it to you, that there's no longer a way to get a job at IBM, work there for 50 years, and retire with a pension. The world is so different. So Mm -hmm. I just think it's, I do think it's an intergenerational misunderstanding in a lot of ways. And are there entitled D-bag millennials in this world? Yeah, but there are entitled D-bag humans in this world. That's not a millennial problem. Mm -hmm. I think it really is an issue of lens. And I think the millennial generation are some of the most creative, hardworking people ever. Because we've grown up with the internet, we understand how things work. We are we are at the forefront of the gig economy, quote unquote. And I think we're I think we're awesome. And if people want to talk down to us, that's fine. But we're coming for their gigs because they're gonna retire soon, and the world will be ours.
1: Ha. Ah. <laughs> done. I feel like we should have like an orchestral. not
0: right like. Ha! <laughs> 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 We're coming for you with our avocado toast. Yep, absolutely. Um,
1: all right, I just have one more question for you, which I ask every I ask this of every guest, so it's not just because I'm trying to put you on the spot everybody has to answer this question and the question is if you had five million dollars deposited into your account tomorrow by some benevolent mysterious donor with no like tax-free no strings attached it's just yours it's a gift here you go like you don't have to do anything for it it's just it's just a gift um what would you do with the money
0: well Well, it's funny you ask because I actually had someone offer me five million dollars in the spam section of my Facebook messages yesterday because some ambivalent uh, Nigerian man had put it in his account. I'm dead serious. <laughs> I was like, "Are you kidding me, man?" This is the as oldest as time. Oh, he's like, How did "You, because your last name is White, so was his." I was like, "Okay, move along, bot." Um, <laughs> what would I do? Move along, bot. <laughs> move along. What would I do? I mean, four words. The first thing I would do marching band on retainer um because that would be awesome i'd be able to announce my presence anywhere i went and celebrate with friends ridiculously Um, but i think what i would do with five million dollars is i would probably oh my gosh what even would i do after the marching band uh i would buy a house in probably (laughs) i would invest in the housing market i would buy a house here in new york city so it'd be worth 10 million in two years. And then I would pay off student loan debt for a bunch of my friends. And then I think I would honestly, after the house, after the paying off debt, paying off my credit card bills, and maybe infusing some more of it into a really high level, awesome mastermind or something for my business, I think I would put the rest of it in the stock market and let it grow. Mm. which is probably the boring way to end that description. But that's the best thing you can do with your money is pop
1: it into index
0: funds, folks.
1: I mean, yeah, that all depends on how many friends you have to, you're paying off. <laughs> for, <laughs> how big yeah, that's, debt too. that's fair. That's fair.
0: I'm <laughs> tax free. So I get all that 5 million. So yeah,
1: That'd I'm be- like, I'm like, yeah. can I be your friend? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you already are, Jamie.
1: <laughs> ah, so awesome. Well, <laughs> This has been so fun. Do you have any parting thoughts that you would like to leave our audience with?
0: Absolutely. I think... I would encourage people to be mindful of the way they work and what's not working for them and to not wait until they're at the end of the rope to make the change, whether it's to charge more, whether it's to switch up your packages to work a little less, whether it is to do more of the stuff you're interested in. Don't wait till you're at the end of your rope. Do it now So you have all that extra energy to make it happen. And it's going to feel good all the same.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Hillary. This has been absolutely amazing. Um, I'm going to make sure that we pop all of your like links and stuff in the show notes, but if there's anything in particular you want to set, you want to share, or like you want people to go to, to find you, let us know.
0: Absolutely. I will. Thank you so much, my love. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege and thank everyone listening for listening.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Bye lovely. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Creatives Making Money, but don't go anywhere without hitting that subscribe button. And remember, after the show, it's the after party. We do a weekly after party on Facebook Live every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Each week I'll be jamming there live on special actionable takeaways for you from that week's episode. So make sure to go to creativesmakingmoney.com/afterparty to join us. And if you're looking to connect with more listeners and like-minded creatives, you totally can. Part of the purpose of this podcast is to create conversation and community, and so my biggest hope is that you continue the convo in our private online Facebook lounge. You can head to creativesmakingmoney.com group to join our free group for listeners and as always you can find important links and details in this episode's show notes available at creativesmakingmoney.com slash hillary weiss that's hillary with two l's weiss w-e-i-s-s do not hesitate to head over there now and grab up all of those awesome links and as always create like you mean it